This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Bunker Start Your Week. We're your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me is Gavin Esler. Hello, Gavin. Hello, good morning. We're now more than three weeks into the Israel-Hamas war and the ground offensive has begun with Israeli tanks and troops moving into the Gaza Strip. The internet was down there for a while over the weekend, making it hard to find out exactly what was going on. We do know that water, food and fuel are running out and people are becoming increasingly desperate. Crowds broke into UN aid warehouses on Sunday. What do we know about Israel's ground offensive so far? What do we know about Israel's ground offensive so far? I think what we know is that things are moving in the way that many people predicted. In other words, those who said that Israel has a right to defend itself, Israel has a right to pursue Hamas, but Israel will get involved in something which is much, much worse, not just for the population in Gaza, but which will be detrimental to Israel's reputation around the world. So what is the aim here? Is it really to eliminate Hamas? Is it revenge? Is it punishment, collective punishment of Palestinians? And those are the questions that are being asked by governments and they're being raised by the United Nations. For the Palestinians, this is another Nakba, another catastrophe. And I think one of the things that really struck me when I visited Israel quite a lot, but never been to, been to the West Bank, but never been into Gaza. But what we do know about Gaza is it's 2 million people in a very, very small area. It's about 40 kilometers long and about 10 kilometers wide, 6 to 12 kilometers wide, depending on where, where you are. So it's like the population of Birmingham or greater West Midlands in a very small area being asked to move. And obviously, obviously, everybody predicted that it would be if this was the way in which uh, Israel pursued their objectives, hitting, we were told, 600 targets from the air a day is one of the things the Israeli Air Force has talked about in a very small area. It would be a humanitarian catastrophe. And the question is, how do we all get out of it? How does the world react? And how does Egypt react? Can they open the border? Should they open the border? And the political implications for Egypt of doing that would be quite significant. Yes, the UN has been increasingly vocal about the plight of Palestinians, and Israel has been increasingly angry about the UN. The Economist wrote on Friday that each time Israel has gone to war, it has known that international tolerance for the action it takes dwindles very quickly, and it has to therefore act fast. Is that starting to happen, do you think? Well, uh, I think international tolerance is going down. I mean, we've seen it here in, in Britain. It's not just the protest marches, it's the divisions in the Labour Party and elsewhere between people who wish Israel to be secure, but actually are worried that this is going to get out of control. And not only that, it's been 
a minor part of the news, but it seems to me to be quite important that we have had, for example, Jewish settler shooting dead a Palestinian harvesting uh, olives near Nablus in the West Bank. There have been a number of Palestinians killed by settlers in that area. Bedouin village in that area was apparently evacuated. Some 200 people were pushed out. So these kind of things, I mean, it gets us back to what I thought was one of the distractions at the start of this conflict, when people were saying, why doesn't the BBC call people terrorists? And the BBC, as you know, constantly says Hamas is defined as a terrorist organization by the British and other governments. But what should we say of settlers who shoot Palestinians? What should we say of them? Is this terrorism or what is it? So we are into, it is that old phrase, deja vu all over again. It is another mess in the Middle East with no obvious end. And the question I would would suggest that we need to ask is, what is an achievable objective by the Israeli government? And I'm not quite sure anybody knows the answer to that, including people in the, gov- the Israeli government themselves. There was a horrible incident yesterday on a Dagestan, the former Soviet Republic, when people landing on a flight from Israel were attacked by a mob. Tell us more about what happened there. Well, uh, Dagestan is a mainly Muslim part of Russia or the Soviet Union. And there was a mob that heard that a plane was coming in from Tel Aviv. And they ran through, the reports say they ran through the airport looking for Jewish people to, we don't know, beat up or, or... detain or whatever. And some were eventually arrested. About 60 people were eventually arrested. Interestingly, President Zelensky in Ukraine said it was part of Russia's widespread culture of hatred. I think it's much wider than that, actually. I think it's part of anti-Semitism, which is, goes, around, goes around the world. We've seen it on social media. There's some of the posts that uh, some people put up are, are, are despicable. And it shows in to Israelis, I suspect, how Jewish people may be seen around the world. And it adds to that sense of fear. And one of the things, you know, I visited Israel many, many times. And I remember an Israeli academic saying to me, you realize this is fear on both sides. Israel may be much stronger than the Palestinians, but Israel fears, of course, the Arab and Muslim world, which is much stronger than we are. And when you've got two groups of people, both of whom have legitimate fears, you have got a unstable situation. I'm not making kind of facile comparisons, but even in Northern Ireland, we saw the same kind of thing when Catholics felt, nationalists felt in a minority in in Northern Ireland, but Protestants, unionists felt in a minority within the island of Ireland, and both have their insecurities. And the same at a much greater level is true in Israel. There have been more skirmishes outside the Gaza Strip. The US struck two Syrian bases used by Iran-linked terrorist groups a few days ago, and Hezbollah says it shot down an Israeli drone. It says that. We don't know whether that's confirmed or not. And over the weekend, the Israeli PM, Benjamin Netanyahu, said the war could go on for years. Does Israel have any plan, do you think, for what it thinks should happen to people who are currently trying to live in the Gaza Strip? Well, I I think we could say that the war in one sense has been going on for years anyway. One of the things that Netanyahu is being criticised for is the lack of... When you are in a position of power, as the Israeli government have been, you are the ones who can actually make the political weather and change things. And under Netanyahu in particular, nothing much was done except to bottle up all the resentments in Gaza. So the war in that sense has been going on for years. But to your other point... 
there are all kinds of malefactors in this area, and Iran has been playing a very clever, I suppose one should say, game behind the scenes and not so much behind the scenes. So they give money to various groups, including Hezbollah in Lebanon. They have destabilized Lebanon, which is now it should be a shining jewel in the Middle East, and it's not. It's a, it's a mess. They have interfered in Yemen. They have rivalries with Saudi Arabia. And you could say that the Iranians have already achieved one objective, which is the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel seems to be off. The United Arab Emirates is very worried. People are there are very worried about Iranian influence extending. And so while they sit in the background, they are clearly a major player here. And that is one of the things that worries the United States, because what will Iran do next? And what will Iran's proxies do next? Because they have been fighting a number of proxy wars, as I say, including in Yemen, including in Syria, and they have interfered in the politics of Iraq too. There was another big pro-Palestinian demo in London on Saturday. More and more Labour MPs are saying that Keir Starmer should call for a ceasefire. Now, obviously, that would just be performative, since neither Israel nor Hamas are going to take any notice of what Keir Starmer says. But would it be the right thing to do? Well, this is, you know, we we all want this to end, don't we? We all want it to end. You'd have to be insane to think that what is going on in Gaza should continue, but it possibly will for quite a while. And you're right. Keir Starmer is being asked to take a position on something where he has no leverage, frankly. Britain's position, I mean, I don't think I don't think Britain's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has much leverage here at all. So why would the leader of the opposition have it? So one of the things that's striking is the ability of some people within the Labour Party they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Things were going very well for Labour, and now their divisions have come to the fore. That's not to say that people shouldn't express an opinion. I would like a ceasefire. I would like the fighting to stop. But it doesn't really help anybody for people just to take a position which nobody outside the United Kingdom cares about. Beyond Israel, the big AI summit organised by Rishi Sunak is happening this week at Bletchley Park, and Kamala Harris, the US Vice President, will be giving a keynote speech. What's the thinking behind calling this summit? I think everybody is both worried about the possibilities of AI and also excited about some of the possibilities of AI. I mean, I've been to (laughs) nothing at this level, but I've been to a couple of conferences about AI and I have to say, when I've come out at the end of it, I'm just as confused, perhaps perhaps more articulately confused than I was at the beginning. I mean, it is quite clear there are extraordinary uh, opportunities here. It's also clear that we are very worried that, you know, chat GPT is you ain't seen nothing yet. So Ursula von der Leyen, uh, you know, uh, Antonio Guterres of UN Secretary General and others are going to be there. One of the things they're going to be talking about is cyber attacks and bioterrorism and deep fakes and so on. And my concern is we we can't even spot shallow fakes, never mind deep fakes. So there's a lot to talk about. The get together in Bletchley Park is clearly a good thing. It means that people of goodwill are getting together to try and think things through whether they come to any conclusion or whether people leave more puzzled and more confused at the end, as as unfortunately I have done. I mean, they'll talk about registration and licensing and a code of conduct and so on, which is great as long as everybody is on board with that. But there are some countries, for example, where probably they're not very likely to um, pay much attention. 
So opinion often seems to be divided between the people who warn that AI could run out of human control and end up exterminating us in some way or another, and for some motive or another, it's hard to know. And those who think it's a force for good that shouldn't be held back, that it could you know, transform the NHS, for example, and people who already think it's doing a great deal of damage in the form, as we were saying, of shallow fakes, deep fakes, chat GPT. Is that, are you more towards the latter camp? I have to say that it's not as if in human history we've never been here before when the printing press appeared people were terrified that you know peasants would actually be able to read the bible and then when they read the bible they'd suddenly decide that perhaps the teaching of the roman catholic church in germany wasn't right and it led to the 30 years war so you know but we're not saying we shouldn't have books so i think my puzzlement is like many many other people i think there are obviously reasons to be concerned but there are also reasons to be excited that some of this might actually help us in terms of medical breakthroughs and scientific breakthroughs and so on so Maybe I feel a bit like a medieval peasant. I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen next. Maybe the Reformation. Let's look to the US. Mike Pence dropped out of the US presidential race on Saturday. What would it take to stop Trump getting the Republican nomination at this point? Well, that is a very good question. And of course, Mike Pence was frankly, a bit of a non-entity as, uh, as Vice President of the United States. Um, and maybe that's why Donald Trump brought him along. His finest moment, Pence's finest moment, was to condemn the idea that uh, Trump was really the president who was elected in 2020. There doesn't seem to be any candidate so far that gets to the heart and soul of the Republican Party. So I, I'd put it another way, actually, which is, what on earth are Republicans for these days? I mean, they used to be a small C conservative party. And we understood kind of the relationship with the British Conservative Party, that they believe broadly in smaller government and personal liberty and so on. That's all totally understandable. But the fact that they have fallen into line, not just behind somebody who clearly, in the case of Donald Trump, does not believe in American democracy because he's tried to overturn it for, for the past four years. So that's very odd. And then we have seen there, I can't even remember who it is now, is it Johnson? You know, the, the, the various people they've nominated to be Speaker of the House, which constitutionally, after the president and vice president, is the third most important job. And they're so divided among themselves, they begin to make the divisions in the British Conservative Party look uh, almost as if you could heal them. So what would it take to stop Trump? You could put it another way. What would it take to save American democracy over the next year? Well, speaking of the divisions in the Conservative Party, there is another right-wing conference in London this week called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, or NatCon 2, as some people are referring to it. And it's got Jordan Peterson. It's got Kemi Badenoch. It's got Matt Goodwin, obviously. He's always at these things. And they're meeting in Greenwich, where Liz Truss lives. And... You've got to wonder whether this is the future of the Tory party now or if they're just trying out new things. Well, I, I think they're preparing for a long time in opposition where they're going to uh, start devouring themselves a bit. They're also incredibly potent within a small section of our society and they are causing great problems within the Conservative Party, as Rishi Sunak would tell you if uh, we had him on the programme and he was prepared to, to do a, a, an honest interview. I mean, they're in a bit of a mess, and maybe they just need a very long time in opposition to try and sort themselves out.
King Charles is on a trip to Kenya this week, and for many years after independence, Kenyans seemed quite fond of the Queen. She tended to get a warm welcome, but times have obviously changed. William and Kate had an awkward visit to the Caribbean last year. What are the tensions around this visit? Well, one of them is our shared history. I mean, Kenya is a wonderful, wonderful country, but between 1952 and 1960, the repression of the Mau Mau insurgency uh, led to all kinds of human rights abuses by British troops. And so the king is, it's great. I personally think it's great that he, he should go to Kenya and perhaps he should find some way of apologizing for some of the things in the past and then perhaps speaking eloquently about what we might do in the future, since Kenya is an important part of the of the British Commonwealth. It's very difficult, I suspect, because this visit will be looked at very, very carefully for what the king actually says. And I suspect that the speech has been written and poured over, or the main speech, uh, quite a bit so that he doesn't put a foot wrong. I don't think it will be quite as um, odd as the Caribbean visit in which we saw members of our royal family going around in what looked like a 1950s Land Rover. So I don't, I don't think anything like that will happen. And I suspect it will end up being regarded as a rather good thing that he's going. Parliament has shut down this week ahead of the King's speech, but there's a lot of action at the COVID inquiry, including various public health officials and civil servants, people like Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings. Apparently, he's been spending time on the holy island of Lindisfarne, presumably in what I believe is now known as monk mode. What would you be asking him if you were Heather Hallett? <laughs> I tell you what, I'd be just really very interested to see the WhatsApp messages between this peculiar lads club that was running the country, or unless Carrie Simons was running the country. I mean, who was running the country? Who was actually in charge of all this? How engaged was Boris Johnson? And, uh, you know, George Osborne has said there's all kinds of misogynistic WhatsApp messages between some of these lads. And we'd all be shocked if that were the case, wouldn't we? Sorry, I'm getting off the point. Um, This is something which touched people, everybody in this country, some lost loved ones. And we mustn't forget that. And we know that the Lads Club were also involved in the various drinking binges and so on, when the rest of us were supposedly in lockdown. So every stage, it's, it's revelatory. It will be important in terms of the science and in terms of the politics of what we do if if there is another outbreak of some disease or infection that we need to control. But it is very, very revelatory about the kind of people we allow to run our country, and they don't come out of it very well, or very few of them do. I think what we are finding is that the scientists, actually, and some of the government officials coming out very well, but some of the people we've elected and their hangers on do not come out very well. I understand from some of the WhatsApps that Boris Johnson didn't like going to COBRA meetings, of which I should say there's apparently one today because they're concerned about a terrorist threat due to the Israel-Hamas war. But he didn't like going to COBRA meetings because it meant leaving his office, which really does. Yeah. I mean, Boris Johnson doesn't like doing work. That's not the work that puts him, you know, he's quite happy to do the performative stuff and remember hanging from a, a wire with the British flag flying and a helmet on and doing all that sort of thing and driving a bulldozer. He's quite happy with the performance of of politics, but that's why he didn't deliver anything. He loved making announcements. I mean, do you remember, do we have a bridge or tunnel to Northern Ireland? I can't remember. And and an airport in the, you know, in the Thames estuary and all that stuff. And he loved spending other people's money, but actually doing the business of politics and delivering anything he wasn't really that interested in. 
And some slightly better news, Britain's joined a moratorium on deep sea mining until we know more about its effects. That might not please the Tory free marketeers in Greenwich, but environmentalists will be relieved. And there is another storm on the way. This one's called Kieran. Watch out for that one on Wednesday and Thursday. And finally, it's Halloween on Tuesday. Are you celebrating Halloween this this year, Irvin? Well, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how I'm on celebrate. So I, I, I'm not really interested in knocking on people's doors and asking for for um, for some tooth destroying sweets. But we have been carving pumpkins in my family, and I have to say that of the pumpkins that we carved yesterday, and there were four of them, mine was definitively the worst. Um, but it is quite it's quite good it is quite good fun carving pumpkins who does it most resemble <laughs> I, I yeah I, I i'm afraid it most resembles some some something out of a ho- horror film that's very very badly um destroyed by uh, by my inability actually to move the little knife around properly well, there were a lot of Liz Trust pumpkins this year, I think, uh, So, this time last year. I'm not sure what the uh, pumpkin of choice will be this year. No, <laughs> I, we have not done pumpkins um, because I will have to be out at work on Tuesday night. So I cannot, as I normally do, take my son and daughter potentially around trick-or-treating. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Slightly sad, but also slightly relieved. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'd use any excuse to avoid it. But there we are. But the pumpkins, are, pumpkins are good. Pumpkins are good. That is what note we are ending on. Gavin, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And if you enjoy The Bunker, you can support us by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast. You can choose how much to donate and for how long. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor with Gavin Esler. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production.